This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. So I'm joined by Don Sahar, who's an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of New Orleans and the author of many books, including Why It's Okay to Eat Meat. Don, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to get started with a question that I ask all my guests to get to know you. Uh, what gave rise to your interest in philosophy? And then how did that result in becoming a professional philosopher? Good question. So when I was an undergrad, I was initially intending to major in economics. And uh, I had that intention because I was really interested in social problems and trying to help make the world a better place. And I thought of economics as this very practical way to gain skills that I could use to then you know, tackle some of these issues. When I was taking my economics classes, I had a bit of frustration that I imagine lots of social science students have in realizing the stuff that you're learning in classes is a lot drier and more technical than the stuff that got you excited in the first place. And you know, some of the big fundamental issues that might have driven me to study economics were not really the things that, that we were grappling with in the classroom. And when I was a junior, I took a course in philosophy and economics with uh, Dan Hausman, who was uh, a specialist in that area, Wisconsin. And in that class, we explored all sorts of fascinating issues at the intersection of ethics and public policy and economic analysis. And that class was just everything that I wanted college to be. And so, you know, by the end of the semester, I decided, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. This is the kind of thing that's, that's interesting to me. And so I, I switched majors and the rest is history. Uh, why become an academic? It's one thing to love the topic, but to, you know, do it for a living is another. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's, Sorry, I forgot uh, the rest of your question. So yeah, I mean, I think at the time my thought was, and kind of continues to be, you know, I, I figured I'd apply to PhD programs that seemed like they were promising. And if I got into a really good and exciting one, then I'd give it a shot. And, you know, if at the end of the day, I wasn't able to turn it into a career and I just ended up having to say, look, this was something cool that I did in my 20s. Uh, that would be fine. And then I'd go and get a real job. You know, and you know, maybe someday I, I still will have to go and get a real job. But uh, at least so far, the profession has not kicked me out. And, um, and so I've been able to, to make a go of it. And it's been really great. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it's a good uh, model for everybody. I mean, I've been very lucky in a lot of ways and um, I've been really successful uh, in ways that I didn't have any reason to expect I would be uh, at, the, at the outset. And so I would 
maybe caution people from looking at me as an illustration of what would happen if you went down this route. But at the same time, I've, I've, you know, just really enjoyed the experience and, and feel really fortunate to get to, to get to make a living doing this thing that people used to have to find rich patrons in order to get a chance to do. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to, to get to make a living being a philosopher of all things. Yeah, I can vouch. I can vouch uh, that uh, philosophy job market is brutal. I would not recommend it to anybody. And if you get lucky, more power to you. But I mean, it's, it's hard work, but it's also luck and it's timing. And well. um, so switching gears a little bit, you're a professional philosopher, but you work on particular topics, environmental ethics. Um, but I really wanted to focus for this interview on one of your books. It's not your first book. Uh, but it's called Why It's Okay to Eat Meat. And for, for, for two reasons. One, I don't think a lot of people think about the ethics of what they consume and the way philosophers maybe do. Um, and the other one being that most moral philosophers that I know of that I've talked to think eating meat is at least prima facie or on the surface morally wrong. But I wanted to step back. Why should we think ethics or morality or, or issues of morality would apply to food. Like it, killing, yes, right? Or drugs or something, but it's sort of counterintuitive that it would apply to food. Yeah, that's, that's totally fair. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one, one way to answer that question just at a, a very sort of broad stroke is, is to say that ethics understood in a comprehensive way is really trying to think about how we ought to live in general. And so in a way, there is a kind of ethical question, maybe not one of the most paradigmatically moral questions, you know, like, you know, should we murder somebody or not? You know, maybe that's a, a bit more paradigmatically moral of a question, whereas, you know, should I, eat this sandwich or not, maybe doesn't seem as paradigmatically moral. But in a way, uh, if we're thinking about how we want to live and what kinds of people we want to be and how we want to relate to the world that we inhabit, these are ethical questions. Um, and when you are thinking about meat in particular, it's not just a question of how do you want to live, but there are these other facts about how meat gets produced that raise distinctive questions that, you know, might not necessarily arise from, you know, the apple that you might find at the farmer's market, um, where maybe you say, there's an ethical question there too about, you know, how do I want to live? Do I want to eat this apple? Say, well, you know, whatever, no big deal. But what about this hamburger that in all likelihood was produced by a uh, sort of agricultural corporation that was operating in ways that I'm not necessarily comfortable with, morally speaking. Uh, maybe I don't think that the animals were treated well. Maybe I'm worried that, you know, the, the carbon footprint of this hamburger is, is pretty significant. I'm contributing to all sorts of of problems uh, when I participate in this particular market, 
And so that seems like maybe a, a particularly serious kind of ethical uh, question, you know, that maybe just thinking abstractly about food, you know, isn't that salient. Um, but about this particular kind of food, it seems like uh, we should have something to say for ourselves if we want to participate in this market that is connected to some really uh, important and genuine problems. So putting aside issues of health and environment, can you give me a basic argument for being a vegetarian or a vegan? What is like a very simple common sense argument? If someone asked you like, you know, why should I eat less meat? Or what, you know, what, you know, what is the argument that vegetarians will give in the literature? Like the simplest, most basic. Yeah, so I would say, um, you know, there's different wrinkles to, you know, different versions of the argument. But the basic thought is, you know, you look at how the meat industry operates. And you're talking about animals being raised in very large numbers in pretty cramped, uh, you know, unsanitary often conditions where the animals don't necessarily have uh, a nice environment to, to move around in, never mind uh, the kind of natural space where they can live the, the life that, you know, their species is built to live. Um, when they are you know, big enough to be slaughtered. They are often handled pretty roughly uh, in, in transporting them from their farms to the slaughtering facilities. And, uh, and at the slaughtering facilities, a lot of the ways that, that the animals get slaughtered um, have a, a lot of uh, failures and other kinds of problems that can result in the animals uh, suffering significantly before they're killed. And, you know, these aren't just very rare problems that that happen every once in a while but they they happen uh relatively regularly um and when you're talking about an industry that's raising you know millions or billions of creatures per year uh even a small percentage of that is a whole lot of of suffering and um you know and inhumane treatment um, being inflicted on beings that, you know, are being brought into existence purely because people feel like eating. And so yeah, but you might Don, just, sorry. I don't, Don, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I don't kill these animals, right? I've never killed an animal in my life. So, so that's true, right? But so why should I go? But I think, you know, if you are, if you are someone who is participating in a market, where the products that you are consuming have been produced in ways that are routinely harmful in ways that you wouldn't feel justified doing yourself. Um, that at least raises an ethical question of, is that okay to do, right? And maybe, I mean, I've written the book on why it's okay to eat meat, right? So I think that ultimately, if you think about these things hard enough, then you can see how uh, an individual could live a moral life while continuing to consume some of these products. But, you know, saying that, I do think it's important to see that it's not simple, right? Like, if there are, there are a lot of ways that, 
that these things could work such that it would be clearly wrong, right? So like if every time I ate a chicken, the way that that got set up was that I called up my local factory farm, right? And I said, hey, could you raise me a chicken? And they raised that chicken specifically for me in a way that I knew was morally unconscionable, right? And then they slaughtered it and they handed it over, right? If that's how it worked, I should not eat chickens. I should become, you know, an abstainer, a, a vegetarian in that particular respect, right? But the, the key thing that makes it okay in the end, I think, is, is just that the details of how the industry works and how we relate to the products that we consume aren't that straightforward. Uh, and because they're not that straightforward, um, it makes the, the ethics of the issue a, a little bit more complex and it, it makes there uh, end up being more room to see how somebody could continue to engage in this particular kind of consumption while being an ethically upstanding human being. So it, my understanding of what you're saying and, and what I got from the book um, was something like, hey, uh, as an individual, my actions aren't um, or the system isn't very sensitive to my actions as an individual. So if I go to the grocery store and I buy a chicken, um, the system is so large and complex, it's not clear that, that buying the chicken or not would make a difference in terms of suffering. Um, is that the gist of what you're saying? So the way to think about it, I think, is um, in terms of how my behavior as an individual is going to shape the decisions of the people who are ultimately uh, choosing whether or not to, to raise animals in ways that I have uh, concerns about, right? If every time I put a chicken in my mouth, that sort of mechanically causes uh, somebody in a, a, a meat company to produce another chicken, right? And to do so in a way that I find objectionable, then that's a problem, right? But if every time I eat a chicken, that signal from me gets kind of lost in the noise of the supply chain before anybody, you know, ever pays attention to it. Or if, you know, people hear the signal, but they don't do anything differently as a result, right? Then that's a, that's a different story. And so if you're thinking about you know, buying a chicken at the grocery store, let's say. Um, it's not automatic that when I buy a chicken at the grocery store, that's gonna cause the grocer to order more chickens in the future than they otherwise would have. Because if you think about the kind of decision a grocer has to make, right? They're not taking orders from individual customers and then, you know, buying that amount of stuff. They're just trying to keep their shelves stocked with a variety of things knowing that on any given day, right, people are gonna come in looking for all sorts of different things and they can't necessarily depend on any particular person buying a particular thing. And so the fact that I buy a chicken today might actually for that grocer be neither here nor there to how many chickens they should order next week, right? And so if they don't make any change to their future orders because of me, then that means that the decision that I've made about whether to eat that chicken Right, got sort of swallowed up in the noise of the supply chain before any meat company ever heard about it. Right? But you could also imagine a scenario where the grocer does change what they order, 
right? They, they say, all right, you know, I'm going to order fewer chickens because Donnie decided that he wasn't going to, uh, to buy chicken today. Um, in that case too, right? Even if like, let's say the meat company receives the difference in order, um, when they're making decisions about how many chickens to raise, right? They're operating on the basis of, you know, long-term market projections about, you know, how chicken is going to be demanded in the marketplace and what kinds of returns they can expect for different kinds of products. And it might just be that in that kind of decision-making process, a small change in order from one grocery store isn't going to really affect uh, whether or not they operate their farm at full capacity, right? And so, you know, that would be another kind of situation where, you know, maybe the signal has gotten through, but it's not the kind of signal that has changed what anybody has decided to do on the production end, right? And so because of uh, various factors like these, right, either the noise, uh, the, the signal getting lost in the noise, or it just kind of not affecting people's decision-making, um, it turns out that as an individual consumer, um, there isn't this nice neat connection between what you decide to eat and what actually gets produced. Um, and so we need a different and more complex way to think about you know, our relationship as individual consumers and these problems that uh, afflict the industry that uh, we're getting the product. So here's, an, here's a question. Um, suppose I say, look, I'm just gonna go buy a Big Mac because my actions as an individual they're not really that um, relevant to what markets do. Markets aren't—they're just not sensitive enough. Um, okay, but doesn't that reasoning apply to things like climate change and voting badly? I mean, I could make the same argument about casting a, a racist vote or, a, um, you know, leaving my lights on all the time and just being like this horrible consumer that does not care at all about climate change. <laughs> because once again, there's just huge systems, and my individual contribution just doesn't really seem to matter. Is that, wouldn't that argument you're running with vegetarianism have those implications for these other things too? Well, so I think uh, there are some different issues that are raised by the voting case, right? So like, um, I think there's an expressive dimension to that that seems like it's a problem sort of apart from, so like, I don't think for example that it would be morally appropriate for a person to like walk around wearing a shirt that says like, I love factory farming, you know, let's torture the animals. Uh, if, you know, even if that doesn't make a difference to anything that actually happens in the meat industry, uh, expressing that kind of repugnant viewpoint seems like a, a thing that a morally upstanding person would try not to do um, in itself. And so I think, you know, in sort of the same way, um, you know, going to the polls, even if the racist candidate had no chance of winning, let's say, or maybe it was vastly overdetermined to win, as might unfortunately uh, be the case sometimes, um, you know, even if you weren't going to make a difference, there might still be something, you know, that we would rightly object to in, in engaging in that kind of behavior. Um, but I do think that, you know, when it comes to uh, when it comes to actions like, for example, the the case that you gave about, um, you know, restricting your carbon footprint, 
I mean, I think that if, if it's something where uh, this is, you know, like something that's just totally wasteful and you get no value from it, um, then, you know, yeah, like the fact that you would be contributing to the fight against climate change um, is a, a good reason for you not to engage in this wasteful activity in sort of the same way that like, if you don't like the Big Mac, right, and you're just sort of eating it randomly, uh, the fact that this implicates you in an important problem might be a reason, you know, to, to break the tie in favor of not doing it. Um, but I think more generally, when we think about eating meat um, and the role that it plays in people's lives, it's not like, you know, leaving the lights on when you leave the house. Right, it's something that people are actually getting some value from. That uh, even if it's just the value of getting to not think about, you know, what you're eating as this fraught decision that you have to make, um, and just getting to do things the way that you're used to doing them. Um, I mean, I think there's there is real value that people get from um, from keeping their omnivorous diets, uh, and so the the question is you know, is there something sufficiently objectionable about eating meat that it would warrant uh, giving up that value? And obviously vegetarians and vegans think the answer is yes. And so my challenge is to try to explain uh, why a, a person might be led to say that the answer is no. I'm wondering too how much work is being done by, <clears throat> by the living conditions and pain and suffering. And I'm curious what you think about this. Like um, in situations where we have animals that live really good lives, they're killed painlessly, they live relatively long. Um, is it, it seems the, the intuitions here with vegetarianism are largely around suffering, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, the death so, in and of itself doesn't seem to play as much of a part if it's like painless and the life is pretty good. So I think there are different views about this in the literature. Um, and uh, among vegans who I know, just sort of anecdotally speaking, I know that there are, are quite a number of, of folks who, you know, who think, look, there's just something disrespectful about, um, you know, raising these animals and, and killing them before their time, just so that we can get some like, you know, gustatory pleasure. That's in a way, disrespecting these beings and, and the kinds of things that they are. Um, and so I, you know, try to, to maybe, um, you know, dissuade uh, that line of argument uh, a bit in the book. Um, but I do agree with you that um, the more primary issue, at least as I see it, right, is this issue of you know, the animal suffering and the ways that animals are, are treated really, you know, really terribly, um, and not just the, the killing of them as such, right? I, I think, you know, if you, if you tried to, you know, build the case that bringing these animals into existence that otherwise would never have existed, and giving them good lives that are just as good, if not better than most wild animals lives are, right? And then painlessly killing them and eating them and raising new animals in their place, right? Like if that were the thing that we were arguing about, 
I think a lot of vegetarians, not all, right, but a lot of vegetarians would say, look, yeah, okay, maybe that would be fine. The real problem here is just that that's not how it works. Uh, almost all of the meat, unless you're going very specifically to a very specific producer and buying, you know, the fancy expensive farmer's market meat, um, you are almost certainly not getting an animal that was treated nicely and given a beautiful life. And you are almost certainly getting an animal that, uh, you know, lived at least a substantial portion, if not all of its life in um, some pretty, you know, questionable conditions uh, and might've been treated uh, really terribly uh, at points in its life. Um, and, you know, usually it's not that you like had to eat that or else you were going to be unhappy for the rest of your life or that you know your doctor told you you need to eat meat because you're unhealthy or something like that usually that's not what's going on uh usually what's going on is you just kind of felt like eating that animal and you know you should have to answer for that i guess this is my final this is my final question and it's something you touched on in the book why is it that um, vegetarianism is so special. And the reason I'm asking, or, or veganism, the reason I'm asking is it seems like we could spend our lives running around like Mother Teresa doing good all the time and never going on vacations. Um, we could just be horrible people who didn't care about morality at all and just kind of did whatever we wanted. Or we could be somewhere in the middle where we try to be morally conscientious, but we're not moral saints. Um, and that seems like where a lot of reasonable people land. Like you should be a good person, but you don't have to be a moral saint. That would be not a great existence for most people. So then the question becomes, okay, there's lots of suffering in the world you could do something about. Why is animal suffering so special? I understand why it matters, but why is that? Like there's lots of other suffering too. Could you dedicate your time to that and then eat meat? Yeah, so this ends up being the, the way that I kind of make sense of, um, of why it might be okay to eat meat in spite of the, the various problems that we've been discussing um, in this conversation. So, you know, if it were the case that every time you ate meat, you know, that caused animals to be mistreated, you know, in a kind of mechanical way, then I would just say, look, like, you can be a really nice person, you still shouldn't cause harm. Um, but if it's not, if it doesn't work that way, right, and if there isn't this nice a clean relationship between your individual choice and what the meat industry is doing, then the way to think about what you're doing by giving up meat is that you're participating in a valuable movement that's taking action on this important problem. Um, and you are, you know, withdrawing your consumption from, you know, a marketplace that is problematic. Um, but that, I think, uh, kind of in line with what you were saying, um, ends up looking like, you know, one way that we can tackle an important set of problems in a world that's just full of problems. And there are just lots of things that individuals can do um, to try to help make the world a better place. And although I think, you know, most of us aren't doing enough and most of us probably should be doing more uh, to try to tackle problems. I also think that there is space for us not to try to tackle every problem in the world. And not just because it's not desirable to try to be a moral saint, but also because there's value in specialization, 
right? And concentrating your effort in, you know, a few areas where you can actually become more skilled, more effective, more experienced, better connected, and so on. Um, and not necessarily try to spread yourself thin across every different cause. And so I think it's great when people decide, you know, on the basis of these problems to become vegetarians or vegans. Um, but by the same token, it's also great uh, when people decide to, you know, as you say, take up the fight against climate change or uh, tackle criminal justice reform or tackle global poverty or tackle, you know, war. Um, all of these are really valuable ways that people can, can specialize. Um, and so I think, you know, ultimately vegetarianism uh, ends up looking like one option among many um, for, you know, discharging your duty to help make the world a better place, uh, rather than like this one specific thing, everybody has a specific obligation to do. The author, Don Sahar, the book, Why It's Okay to Eat Meat. Don, thanks for coming on the show. I would highly recommend everyone go out and grab the book. It's a great read. Really appreciate it.